450, chapters 68 and 69 of The Count of Monte Cristo. Book talk begins at 8.07. Welcome to Craftlit. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 450, Good Habits. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. I hope you are well. Everything here is going swimmingly because it has not been hot and humid. I know that isn't true for most of the country right now, so I apologize for the weather. But gosh, it's nice here because I'm still working on re-soundproofing and re-insulating the attic room that I'm in, and I am very hopeful that this is going to help. Because recording the last couple of summers has been really, really challenging. So, fingers are crossed for that. And in other good news, we have a winner. Now, I was not able to announce the winner of Julie Davis's book on the Tuesday Crafty Chat live stream because I wasn't able to get into my website. All of my websites were locked down. We don't know what happened. I'm waiting to hear back from powers that be, but after uh, almost a week of wrestling back and forth with phone calls and craziness, I was able to get in this morning and I found out that Joanna is the winner. So Joanna, if you you haven't heard from me yet, you will be hearing from me soon, very soon, about where I should send Julie's book to. (sighs) So that was very exciting. And uh, let's see, updates from all y'all. Herland? is currently being read over on the Classic Tales podcast. So BJ Harrison is tearing that sucker up. And I'm going to mention him again in a little bit. Little Women and War of the Worlds are both coming to PBS slash BBC. They're being done by respected people, people who we're excited by. And I think they're doing casting right now and principal photography will begin in July for the Louisa May Alcott slash Little Women thing. War of the Worlds, I think all they've got so far is that the person, the the writer who did the teleplay for Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell is doing the translation update conversion of War of the Worlds. And they're doing it in Victorian England. They're actually going to film it on location. Because if you listened to that premium audiobook, you know as well as I do, that H.G. Wells was very, very specific about where Martians attacked. So it will be very, very fun to finally get to see a version that matches the book as closely as possible. Links in the show notes to Classic Tales, to the Facebook posts on Little Women and War of the Worlds, and to the Craftlit War of the Worlds sneak peek where I did a YouTube video version of the first episodes because there's so many pictures that I wanted to include. It seemed like the best way to do it. And to the audiobook, just just the audiobook version. So those links will be in the show notes at 
craftlit.com slash 450. It seems like just yesterday we were at 400. This is crazy. <sighs> so that's all good. Last night, I recorded the penultimate live stream for the season for the Once podcast. This is the Once Upon a Time unofficial podcast over with Daniel J. Lewis and Jeremy. And we had a great time because this last Once Upon a Time was a musical episode. Now, it is certainly easier to appreciate some of the intricacies of the episode if you know the characters and have watched the show. But if you watched the show in the beginning and then tuned out, you might have fun going and watching just this one. It won't last forever. At some point, it gets moved over to, I think, Amazon Prime and it costs money to watch. But for now, on Hulu, on the ABC website, and on your DVR, you can probably catch it for free. And then if you really want to horrify yourself, go listen to The Once Podcast, which is episode 299, because I think they do 300 for the last show. You can hear something completely ridiculous that Daniel cooked up where he had us all sing different lyrics to the beginning of Frozen's Let It Go. And both Aaron, one of the other women who's a host, and me, we both are suffering from bronchitis. So <laughs> it was ridiculous and goofy. And it was a lot of fun. So that was Wednesday night, Tuesday at the Crafty Chat. One of the things that I mentioned among the metric ton of things I had to mention because I had just gotten bombarded with stuff during the week and links and pictures and all sorts of things. So it was a pretty chock full episode. But one of the things that I wanted to share with you is if you or your children or your grandchildren or your friend's children find that you are having a hard time or they are having a hard time creating good habits, if they're just ADD enough that they know they need to, but it's not resistance. It's just there are other things going through their brain at the appropriate time, and then they forget, and then the habit never gets formed in their brain. There is an app. It started as a website called Habit RPG. For those of you who are around gamers or gamers yourself, you know that this means habit role-playing game, like Dungeons & Dragons, but an 8-bit version, a digital version. If you go to habitrpg.com, it will redirect you to Habitica. H-A-B-I-T-I-C-A. Habitica is now the name for Habit RPG. It is still an 8-bit role-playing game that you can play on your desktop, on your phone, on your tablet. It's on all platforms. It is completely goofy. And if you don't live in a role-playing universe all the time, it's probably worth watching some of the instructional videos that you can find on YouTube. But for anybody who knows how to play a game like this, it will probably make perfect sense to you. You will recognize all of the pieces there. The difference is the reminders you will be getting and the points you earn are all part of the process of the gamification of imposing new habits on your brain. And getting them locked in there. And the people who it works for are swearing by it. And that includes adults as well as kids. So something to look at if you need that, along with Rooster Money app for tracking allowance and spending for kids and AllowanceBot, which is now an allowance and a chore bot. 
Robin in Texas, I think, is the one who brought that one up. So those are some other useful things that you might find either you or someone you know could use. And now it's time for book talk, because we have not just two fantastic chapters for you today, but we have two voicemails for you. And the first comes from our resident guy, who I am now relying on you, Tim. Anytime I have a question about motivation of one of the male characters in this book, I'm coming to you because you are my man who knows the things. Here's Tim. Hi, Heather. This is Ken from Honolulu. You were asking what do we think is the reason that Dunglar went to the Count of Monte Cristo to talk. My thought is that he wanted somebody just to talk to that was not a friend or somebody that would be judgmental or give back or get the information back to someone that he knew because Danglard knows beyond the shadow of a doubt that Monte Cristo does not know him, does not know anything about his history or anything else. So he's, you know, he just wants to sit and maybe bounce some things off. But I think he also wanted to go talk to him because Monte Cristo introduced him to Calvieri and so he wants to get some ideas on that, too. But I think the bigger picture is that when Danglar showed up, the Abbe was there also. And we know that the Abbe is the Count of Monte Cristo. So that was the interesting thing. The Abbe was out doing something when Danglar showed up. And Monte Cristo just kept very cool about it and um, changed and came back out. But if you listen carefully, he's setting up both Denglar and the other count, forget his name, Monster Reef or something like that, but um, he's setting him, them up for a fall because he's, he's playing to Denglar's avarice because Denglar likes money and he wants to be around money. And so Monte Cristo keeps going back and forth playing with him on his avarice and his need and his desire for money, 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 money. So it's just kind of those things that make it really fun to listen to this book and to read this book. Thank you very much. Bye. So yes, now that makes sense. It makes perfect sense that Denglar wants to talk to a money guy and hang out with him, but also actively get the information he can on Cavalcante. Because by the end of this, we, we know that Denglar would be way happier to have his daughter marry that rich guy rather than Morcerf's son, Albert. Which is kind of interesting, because is that Denglar's prejudice because Morcerf used to just be Fernand, who was the fisher dude, and that his son is just too low for Denglar's daughter? He doesn't seem to have any other real reasons yet for not approving of the match. He, he okayed the match. So it's going to be interesting to see how this all shuffles out. But yes, oh my gosh, the setup of the Abbe. And you're going to see more of that today. The way Monte Cristo is playing the Abbe is really interesting. And I know he just kind of disappeared for a long time, but now he's back. So keep, keep attention to the descriptions you hear today of the Abbe, where he lives and how he lives. It's not a very long description, but it's, it's good to keep in mind. 
We got another voicemail from Brenda. Postal Brenda. <laughs> not, not going Postal Brenda. Just Brenda, who works for the Postal Service. Here she is. Hi, Heather. This is Brenda, the mail lady. And I hope you had a happy birthday. I just finished listening to the latest episode. And I had forgotten from, you know, many weeks back that the baby had been at the orphanage for six months. And that really struck me this time. And and also when um, Madame Donglar said, I was weeping tears for my baby, but I did not kiss him on the face. And um, she accused Villefort of not making sure he was actually dead before he buried him. And it just dawned on me, or it made me think, you know, all of the grown-ups in this baby's life failed him. The mother, the father, and even the Corsican who saved his life didn't really redeem his life. He takes him to the uh, orphanage. And it's six months before they go back and get him. So it, it makes me wonder if Dumas is trying to say uh, another long game in which uh, no wonder this baby turned out to be a terrible kid because he's on his own and he's been on his own since birth. And um, it also made me wonder about, which this wasn't, I'm sure, a theory back then, but you know how babies have to be touched and loved and nurtured or they don't bond. You know, that kind of makes me think maybe that happened to this kid too and that's why he turned out to be such a mess. But anyway, it's just a thought. Um, made me wonder and uh, kind of made me feel sorry for that kid, really, because what a life. Uh, anyway, um, I love your podcast, and I hope you had a great birthday and um, a good week. So bye-bye. So I was thinking that the question that Brenda raised is really an interesting one. It wasn't something that had occurred to me, but I went back and I found the section from it's The Vendetta, Chapter 44. And just to catch you up, the situation that Bertuccio finds himself in after thinking that he killed Vifor is that he, he took the box, he, he ran down to the river, sat down on the bank with my knife, forced open the lock of the box in a fine linen cloth was wrapped a newborn child. Its purple visage and its violet-colored hands showed that it had perished from suffocation, but it was not yet cold. I hesitated to throw it into the water that ran at my feet. After a moment, I fancied that I felt a slight pulsation of the heart, and as I had been an assistant at the hospital in Bastia, I did what a doctor would have done. I inflated the lungs by blowing air into them, and at the expiration of a quarter of an hour, it began to breathe and cried feebly. In my turn, I uttered a cry, but a cry of joy. God has not cursed me, then I cried, since he permits me to save the life of a human creature in exchange for the life I have taken away. And he goes on to say, I had not for a moment the idea of keeping it, but I knew that at Paris there was an asylum where they received such creatures. As I passed the city gates, I declared that I had found the child on the road, and I inquired where the asylum was. The box confirmed my statement. The linen proved that the infant belonged to wealthy parents. The blood with which I was covered might have proceeded from the child as well as from anyone else. No objection was raised, but they pointed out the asylum, which was situated at the upper end of Rue d'Enfer, and after having taken the precaution of cutting the linen into two pieces so that one of the two letters which marked it was on the piece wrapped around the child, while the other remained in my possession, I rang the bell and fled with all speed. A fortnight later, I was at Rogolino, and I said to Asante, 
console thy sister, Israel is dead, but he is avenged. So he tells her about the child and she says, ah, why didn't you keep him? And he goes on to say it's because they didn't have enough money. It wasn't a great time to bring the little boy home. Isn't that obvious? And she said, no, of course, we would have figured out a way. So finally, he's making more money. He's heading out on another job. And Asunta says, hey, when you get back, there'll be a surprise for you. He said, I questioned her, but in vain. She would tell me nothing, and I departed. Our expedition lasted nearly six weeks. We had been to Lucca to take in oil to Leghorn for English cottons, and we ran our cargo without opposition and returned home full of joy. When I entered the house, the first thing I beheld in the middle of Asunta's chamber was a cradle that might be called sumptuous compared with the rest of the furniture, and in it, a baby of seven or eight months old. I uttered a cry of joy. The only moments of sadness I had known since the assassination of my procureur were caused by the recollection that I had abandoned this child. For the assassination itself, I had never felt any remorse. Poor Asunta had guessed all. She had profited by my absence and furnished with the half of the linen, and having written down the day and hour at which I had deposited the child at the asylum, had set off for Paris and had reclaimed it. No objection was raised, and the infant was given up to her. So he was sleeping peacefully in his cradle. He's been rescued by Asunta, Bertuccio's wife, and that should have been great. But Brenda does bring up a really important point that those seven months or so are crucial and all sorts of things can happen beyond the fact that he just hadn't been breathing for a while, a considerable while after being born. So lots of interesting things going on with Andrea Cavalcante, or at least interesting about his history. Things to know for this chapter, Queen Mab and Titania, or Titania, Titania, there are all sorts of ways to pronounce her name. Queen Mab is mentioned by Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet as being a, a queen of dreams, somebody who comes to you when you're dreaming and takes you off to dreamland, sometimes not so much fun. And Titania is the queen of the fairies in Midsummer Night's Dream. Also, dreams are involved, duh, in Midsummer Night's Dream. So that is a reference point. Also, if you have been supplementing your listening with the Classic Tales podcast version of The Count of Monte Cristo that's over on Audible, listen closely to what B.J. Harrison does with his voice in Chapter 69. It is a feat and really subtle, but so good. And it will make you go at first, and then you'll think, ah. So that's it. Everything else we have to talk about after you listen, because there's just too much. And it'll give too much away. All right, here we go. Chapters 68 and 69 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter 68. A Summer Ball. The same day, during the interview between Madame Danglars and the procureur, a travelling carriage entered the Rue du Helder, passed through the gateway of number 27, and stopped in the yard. In a moment, the door was opened, and Madame de Morcerf alighted, leaning on her son's arm. Albert soon left her, ordered his horses, and having arranged his toilet, drove to the Champs-Élysées to the house of Monte Cristo. The Count received him with his habitual smile. It was a strange thing that no one ever appeared to advance a step in that man's favour. 
those who would, as it were, force a passage to his heart, found an impassable barrier. Morcerf, who ran towards him with open arms, was chilled as he drew near, in spite of the friendly smile, and simply held out his hand. Monte Cristo shook it coldly, according to his invariable practice. Here I am, dear Count. Welcome home again. I arrived an hour since. From Dieppe? No, from Treport. Indeed. And I have come at once to see you. This is extremely kind of you, said Monte Cristo with a tone of perfect indifference. And what is the news? You should not ask a stranger, a foreigner, for news. I know it, but in asking for news, I mean, have you done anything for me? Had you commissioned me? said Monte Cristo, feigning uneasiness. Come, come, said Albert, do not assume so much indifference. It is said, sympathy travels rapidly, and when at Treport, I felt the electric shock. You have either been working for me or thinking of me. Possibly, said Monte Cristo. I have indeed thought of you, but the magnetic wire I was guiding acted indeed without my knowledge. Indeed, pray tell me how it happened. Willingly, Monsieur Danglars dined with me. I know it. To avoid meeting him, my mother and I left town. But he met here Monsieur Andrea Cavalcanti. Your Italian prince? Not so fast. Monsieur Andrea only calls himself Count. Calls himself, do you say? Yes, calls himself. Is he not a Count? What can I know of him? He calls himself so. I, of course, give him the same title, and everyone else does likewise. What a strange man you are. What next? You say Monsieur Donglard dined here? Yes, with Count Cavalcanti, the Marquis, his father, Madame Donglard, Monsieur and Madame de Villefort, charming people, Monsieur de Bray, Maximilien Morel, and Monsieur de Chateau Renaud. Did they speak of me? Not a word. So much the worse. Why so? I thought you wished them to forget you. If they do not speak of me, I am sure they thought about me, and I am in despair. How will that affect you, since Mademoiselle Donglar was not among the number here who thought of you? Truly she might have thought of you at home. I have no fear of that. Or if she did... It was only in the same way in which I think of her. Touching sympathy! So you hate each other, said the Count. Listen, said Morcerf. If Mademoiselle Danglars were disposed to take pity on my supposed martyrdom on her account, and would dispense with all matrimonial formalities between our two families, I am ready to agree to the arrangement. In a word, Mademoiselle Danglars would make a charming mistress. But a wife? Diable! And this, said Monte Cristo, is your opinion of your intended spouse? Yes, it is rather unkind, I acknowledge, but it is true. But as this dream cannot be realized, since Mademoiselle Danglars must become my lawful wife, live perpetually with me, sing to me, compose verses and music within ten paces of me, 
and that for my whole life it frightens me. One may forsake a mistress, but a wife, good heavens, there she must always be, and to marry Mademoiselle Donglard would be awful. You are difficult to please, Viscount. Yes, for I often wish for what is impossible. What is that? To find such a wife as my father found. Monte Cristo turned pale and looked at Albert while playing with some magnificent pistols. Your father was fortunate then, said he. You know my opinion of my mother, Count. Look at her, still beautiful, witty, more charming than ever. For any other son to have stayed with his mother for four days at Treport, it would have been a condescension or a martyrdom. While I return more contented, more peaceful, shall I say more poetic, than if I had taken Queen Mab or Titania as my companion. That is an overwhelming demonstration, and you would make everyone vow to live a single life. Such are my reasons for not liking to marry Mademoiselle Donglars. Have you ever noticed how much a thing is heightened in value when we obtain possession of it? The diamond which glittered in the window at Mars or Fossins shines with much more splendor when it is our own. But if we are compelled to acknowledge the superiority of another and still must retain the one that is inferior, do you not know what we have to endure? Worldling, murmured the Count. Thus I shall rejoice when Mademoiselle Eugénie perceives I am but a pitiful atom, with scarcely as many hundred thousand francs as she has millions. Monte Cristo smiled. One plan occurred to me, continued Albert. France likes all that is eccentric. I tried to make him fall in love with Mademoiselle Danglars, but in spite of four letters written in the most alluring style, he invariably answered, My eccentricity may be great, but it will not make me break my promise. That is what I call a devoted friendship, to recommend to another one whom you would not marry yourself. Albert smiled. Apropos, continued he, France is coming soon, but it will not interest you. You dislike him, I think. I, said Monte Cristo, my dear Viscount, how have you discovered that I did not like Monsieur France? I like everyone. And you include me in the expression everyone? Many thanks. Let us not mistake, said Monte Cristo. I love everyone as God commands us to love our neighbor as Christians. But I thoroughly hate but a few. Let us return to Monsieur Franz Depinay. Did you say he was coming? Yes, summoned by Monsieur de Villefort, who is apparently as anxious to get Mademoiselle Valentine married as Monsieur Donglard is to see Mademoiselle Eugénie settled. It must be a very irksome office to be the father of a grown-up daughter. It seems to make one feverish and to raise one's pulse to ninety beats a minute until the deed is done. But Monsieur d'Epinay, unlike you, bears his misfortune patiently. Still more, he talks seriously about the matter, puts on a white tie, and speaks of his family. He entertains a very high opinion of Monsieur and Madame de Villefort. Which they deserve, do they not? I believe they do. 
Monsieur de Villefort has always passed for a severe but a just man. There is then one, said Monte Cristo, whom you do not condemn like poor Danglars. <laughs> because I am not compelled to marry his daughter, perhaps, replied Albert, laughing. Indeed, my dear sir, said Monte Cristo, you are revoltingly foppish. I, foppish? How do you mean? Yes, pray take a cigar, and cease to defend yourself, and to struggle to escape marrying Mademoiselle Danglars. Let things take their course. Perhaps you may not have to retract. Pah, said Albert, staring. Doubtless, my dear Viscount, you will not be taken by force. And seriously, do you wish to break off your engagement? I would give a hundred thousand francs to be able to do so. Then make yourself quite easy. Monsieur Danglars would get double at sum to attain the same end. Am I indeed so happy? said Albert, who still could not prevent an almost imperceptible cloud passing across his brow. But, my dear Count, has Monsieur Danglars any reason? Ah, there is your proud and selfish nature. You would expose the self-love of another with a hatchet, but you shrink if your own is attacked with a needle. But yet Monsieur Danglars appeared delighted with you, was he not? Well, he is a man of bad taste, and is still more enchanted with another. I know not whom. Look and judge for yourself. Thank you. I understand. But my mother... No, not my mother. A mistake. My father intends giving a ball. A ball at this season? Summer balls are fashionable. If they were not, the Countess has only to wish it, and they would become so. You are right. You know they are select affairs. Those who remain in Paris in July must be true Parisian. Will you take charge of our invitation to Messieurs Cavalcanti? When will it take place? On Saturday. Monsieur Cavalcanti's father will be gone. But the son will be here. Will you invite young Monsieur Cavalcanti? I do not know him, Viscount. You do not know him? No, I never saw him until a few days since, and I'm not responsible for him. But you receive him at your house. That is another thing. He was recommended to me by a good abbé, who may be deceived. Give him a direct invitation, but do not ask me to present him. If he were afterwards to marry Mademoiselle Donglars, you would accuse me of intrigue, and would be challenging me. Besides, I may not be there myself. Where? At your ball. Why should you not be there? Because you have not yet invited me. But I come expressly for that purpose. You are very kind, but I may be prevented. If I tell you one thing, you will be so amiable as to set aside all impediments. Tell me what it is. My mother begs you to come. The Comtesse de Morcerf, said Monte Cristo, starting. Ah, Count, said Albert. I assure you, Madame de Morcerf speaks freely to me, and if you have not felt those sympathetic fibres of which I spoke just now thrill within you, 
you must be entirely devoid of them, for during the last four days we have spoken of no one else. You have talked of me? Yes, that is the penalty of being a living puzzle. Then I am also a puzzle to your mother. I should have thought her too reasonable to be led by imagination. A problem, my dear Count, for every one, for my mother as well as others, much studied but not solved. You still remain an enigma. Do not fear. My mother is only astonished that you remain so long unsolved. I believe while the Countess G takes you for Lord Ruthven, my mother imagines you to be Cagliostro or the Count Saint-Germain. The first opportunity you have, confirm her in her opinion. It will be easy for you, as you have the philosophy of the one and the wit of the other. I thank you for the warning, said the Count. I shall endeavour to be prepared for all suppositions. You will then come on Saturday? Yes, since Madame de Morcerf invites me. You are very kind. Will Monsieur Danglars be there? He has already been invited by my father. We shall try to persuade the great Dagesso, Monsieur de Villefort, to come, but have not much hope of seeing him. Never despair of anything, says the proverb. Do you dance, Count? I dance? Yes, you. It would not be astonishing. That is very well before one is over forty. No, I do not dance, but I like to see others do so. Does Madame de Morcerf dance? Never. You can talk to her. She so delights in your conversation. Indeed. Yes, truly, and I assure you, you are the only man of whom I have heard her speak with interest. Albert rose and took his hat. The Count conducted him to the door. I have one thing to reproach myself with, said he, stopping Albert on the steps. What is it? I have spoken to you indiscreetly about Danglars. On the contrary, speak to me always in the same strain about him. I am glad to be reassured on that point. A propos, when do you expect Monsieur d'Epinay? Five or six days hence, at the latest. And when is he to be married? Immediately on the arrival of Monsieur and Madame de Saint-Méran. Bring him to see me. Although you say I do not like him, I assure you I shall be happy to see him. I will obey your orders, my lord. Goodbye. Until Saturday, when I may expect you, may I not? Yes, I promised you. The Count watched Albert, waving his hand to him. When he had mounted his phaeton, Monte Cristo turned and seeing Bertuccio. What news? said he. She went to the palais, replied the steward. Did she stay long there? An hour and a half. Did she return home? Directly. Well, my dear Bertuccio, said the Count, I now advise you to go in quest of the little estate I spoke to you of in Normandy. Bertuccio bowed, and as his wishes were in perfect harmony with the order he had received, he started the same evening. End of chapter 68 Chapter 69 The Inquiry
Monsieur de Villefort kept the promise he had made to Madame Danglars to endeavour to find out how the Count of Monte Cristo had discovered the history of the house at Auteuil. He wrote the same day for the required information to Monsieur de Beauville, who, from having been an inspector of prisons, was promoted to a high office in the police, and the latter begged for two days' time to ascertain exactly who would be most likely to give him full particulars. At the end of the second day, Monsieur de Villefort received the following note. The person called the Count of Monte Cristo is an intimate acquaintance of Lord Wilmore, a rich foreigner, who is sometimes seen in Paris and who is there at this moment. He is also known to the Abbe Busoni, a Sicilian priest of high repute in East, where he has done much good. Monsieur de Villefort replied by ordering the strictest inquiries to be made respecting these two persons. His orders were executed, and the following evening he received these details. The abbé, who was in Paris only for a month, inhabited a small, two-storied house behind Saint-Suplice. There were two rooms on each floor, and he was the only tenant. The two lower rooms consisted of a dining room, with a table, chairs, and a sideboard of walnut, and a wainscoted parlour without ornaments, carpet, or timepiece. It was evident that the abbé limited himself to objects of strict necessity. He preferred to use the sitting-room upstairs, which was more library than parlour, and was furnished with theological books and parchments, in which he delighted to bury himself for months at a time, according to his valet de chambre. His valet looked at the visitors through a sort of wicket, and if their faces were unknown to him or displeased him, he replied that the abbé was not in Paris, an answer which satisfied most persons, because the abbé was known to be a great traveller. Besides, whether at home or not, whether in Paris or Cairo, the abbé always left something to give away, which the valet distributed through his wicket in his master's name. The other room near the library was a bedroom, a bed without curtains, four armchairs and a couch covered with yellow Utrecht velvet, composed with a prie-dieu all its furniture. Lord Wilmore resided in Rue Fontaine-Saint-Georges. He was one of those English tourists who consume a large fortune in travelling, he hired the apartment in which he lived, furnished, passed only a few hours in the day there, and rarely slept there. One of his peculiarities was never to speak a word of French, which he, however, wrote with great facility. The day after this important information had been given to the king's attorney, a man alighted from a carriage at the corner of the Rue Farou, and, rapping at an olive-green door, asked if the Abbe Busoni were within. No, he went out early this morning, replied the valet. I might not always be content with that answer, replied the visitor, for I come from one to whom everyone must be at home, but have the kindness to give the Abbe Bussoni, I told you he was not at home, repeated the valet. Then on his return, give him that card and this sealed paper. Will he be at home at eight o'clock this evening? Doubtless, unless he had at work, which is the same as if he were out. I will come again at that time, replied the visitor, who then retired. At the appointed hour, the same man returned in the same carriage, which, instead of stopping this time at the end of the Rue Ferru, drove up to the green door. He knocked, and it opened immediately to admit him. From the signs of respect the valet paid him, he saw that his note had produced a good effect. "'Is the abbé at home?' asked he. "'Yes, he is at work in his library, 
"'But he expects you, sir,' replied the valet. The stranger ascended a rough staircase, and before a table illumined by a lamp whose light was concentrated by a large shade, while the rest of the apartment was in partial darkness, he perceived the abbe in a monk's dress, with a cowl on his head, such as is used by learned men of the Middle Ages. "'Have I the honour of addressing the abbe Boussoni?' asked the visitor. "'Yes, sir,' replied the abbe. "'And you are the person whom Monsieur de Beauville, "'formerly an inspector of prisons, "'sends to me from the prefect of police?' "'Exactly, sir.' "'One of the agents appointed to secure the safety of Paris.' "'Yes, sir,' replied the stranger with a slight hesitation and blushing. "'The abbe replaced the large spectacles which covered not only his eyes but his temples,' and sitting down motioned to his visitor to do the same. "'I am at your service, sir,' said the abbé, with a marked Italian accent. "'The mission with which I am charged, sir,' replied the visitor, speaking with hesitation, "'is a confidential one on the part of him who fulfils it, and him by whom he is employed,' the abbé bowed. "'Your probity,' replied the stranger, "'is so well known to the prefect "'that he wishes as a magistrate "'to ascertain from you some particulars "'connected with the public safety, "'to ascertain which I am deputed to see you. "'It is hoped that no ties of friendship "'or humane consideration "'will induce you to conceal the truth. "'Provided, sir,' The particulars you wish for do not interfere with my scruples or my conscience. I am a priest, sir, and the secrets of confession, for instance, must remain between me and God, and not between me and human justice. Do not alarm yourself, monsieur. We will duly respect your conscience. At this moment, the abbe pressed down his side of the shade, and so raised it on the other, throwing a bright light on the stranger's face, while his own remained obscured. "'Excuse me, Abbe,' said the envoy of the prefect of the police, "'but the light tries my eyes very much.' The Abbe lowered the shade. "'Now, sir, I am listening. Go on. "'I will come at once to the point.' Do you know the Count of Monte Cristo? You mean Monsieur Zacon, I presume. Zacon? Is not his name Monte Cristo? Monte Cristo is the name of an estate, or rather of a rock, and not a family name. Well, be it so. Let us not dispute about words. And since Monsieur de Monte Cristo and Monsieur Zacon are the same, Absolutely the same. Let us speak of Monsieur Zacon. Agreed. I asked you if you knew him. Extremely well. Who is he? The son of a rich shipbuilder in Malta. I know that is a report, but as you are aware, the police does not content itself with vague reports. However, replied the abbe with an affable smile, when that report is in accordance with the truth, everybody must believe it. 
the police as well as all the rest. Are you sure of what you assert? What do you mean by that question? Understand, sir, I do not in the least suspect your veracity. I ask if you are certain of it. I knew his father, Monsieur Zacon. Ah, indeed. And when a child, I often played with the son in the timber yards. But whence does he derive the title of Count? You are aware that may be bought. In Italy? Everywhere. And his immense riches? Whence does he procure them? They may not be so very great. How much do you suppose he possesses? From one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand livres per annum? That is reasonable, said the visitor. I have heard he had three or four million. Two hundred thousand per annum would make four millions of capital. But I was told he had four million per annum. That is not probable. Do you know this island of Monte Cristo? Certainly. Everyone who has come from Palermo, Napoli or Roma to France by sea must know it since he has passed close to it and must have seen it. I am told it is a delightful place. It is a rock. And why has the Count bought a rock? For the sake of being a Count. In Italy, one must have territorial possessions to be a Count. You have doubtless heard the adventures of Monsieur Zacan's youth. The father's? No, the son's. I know nothing certain. At that period of his life, I lost sight of my young comrade. Was he in the wars? I think he entered the service. In what branch? In the navy. Are you not his confessor? No, sir, I believe he is a Lutheran. A Lutheran? I say I believe such is the case. I do not affirm it. Besides, liberty of conscience is established in France. Doubtless, and we are not now inquiring into his creed, but his actions, in the name of the Prefect of Police. I ask you what you know of him. He passes for a very charitable man. Our Holy Father, the Pope, has made him a knight of Jesus Christ for the services he rendered to the Christians in the East. He has five or six rings as testimonials from Eastern monarchs of his services. Does he wear them? No, but he is proud of them. He is better pleased with rewards given to the benefactors of man than to his destroyers. He is a Quaker, then. Exactly, he is a Quaker, with the exception of the peculiar dress. Has he any friends? Yes, everyone who knows him is his friend. But has he any enemies? One only. What is his name? Lord Wilmore. Where is he? He is in Paris just now. Can he give me any particulars? Important ones. He was in India with Zacon. Do you know his abode? It's somewhere in the Chaussée d'Antin, but I know neither the street nor the number. Are you at variance with the Englishman? I love Zacon. 
and he hates him. We are consequently not friends. Do you think the Count of Monte Cristo had ever been in France before he made his visit to Paris? To that question I can answer positively no. He had not, because he applied to me six months ago for the particulars he required, and as I did not know when I might again come to Paris, I recommended Monsieur Cavalcanti to him. Andrea? No, Bartolomeo, his father. Now, sir, I have but one question more to ask, and I charge you in the name of honour, of humanity and of religion, to answer me candidly. What is it, sir? Do you know with what design Monsieur de Monte Cristo purchased a house at Auteuil? Certainly, for he told me. What is it, sir? To make a lunatic asylum of it, similar to that founded by the Count of Pisani at Palermo. Do you know about that institution? I have heard of it. It is a magnificent charity. Having said this, the abbe bowed to imply he wished to pursue his studies. The visitor either understood the abbe's meaning, or had no more questions to ask. He arose, and the abbe accompanied him to the door. "'You are a great alms-giver,' said the visitor, "'and although you are said to be rich, I will venture to offer you something for your poor people. Will you accept my offering?' "'I thank you, sir.' I am only jealous in one thing, and that is that the relief I give should be entirely from my own resources. However, my resolution, sir, is unchangeable, but you have only to search for yourself, and you will find, alas, but too many objects upon whom to exercise your benevolence. The abbe once more bowed as he opened the door. The stranger bowed and took his leave and the carriage conveyed him straight to the house of Monsieur de Villefort. An hour afterwards, the carriage was again ordered, and this time it went to the Rue Fontaine-Saint-Georges, and stopped at number five, where Lord Wilmore lived. The stranger had written to Lord Wilmore, requesting an interview, which the latter had fixed for ten o'clock. As the envoy of the Prefect of Police arrived ten minutes before ten, he was told that Lord Wilmore, who was precision and punctuality personified, was not yet come in, but that he should be sure to return as the clock struck. The visitor was introduced into the drawing-room, which was like all other furnished drawing-rooms, a mantelpiece with two modern Sèvres vases, a timepiece representing Cupid with his bent bow, a mirror with an engraving on each side, one representing Homer carrying his guide, the other Belisarius begging, a greyish paper, red and black tapestry, such was the appearance of Lord Wilmore's drawing-room. It was illuminated by lamps with ground-glass shades which gave only a feeble light, as if out of consideration for the envoy's weak sight. After ten minutes' expectation the clock struck ten. At the fifth stroke the door opened and Lord Wilmore appeared. He was rather above the middle height, with thin reddish whiskers, light complexion and light hair, turning rather grey. He was dressed with all the English peculiarity, namely in a blue coat with gilt buttons and high collar in the fashion of 1811. 
a white kerseymere waistcoat and nankeen pantaloons three inches too short, but which were prevented by straps from slipping up to the knee. His first remark on entering was, oh, You know, sir, I do not speak French. I know you do not like to converse in our language, replied the envoy. But you may use it, replied Lord Wilmore. I understand it. And I, replied the visitor, changing his idiom, know enough of English to keep up the conversation. Do not put yourself to the slightest inconvenience. Oh, said Lord Wilmore, with that tone which is only known to natives of Great Britain. The envoy presented his letter of introduction, which the latter read with English coolness, and having finished, I understand, said he, perfectly. Then began the questions, which were similar to those which had been addressed to the Abbe Busoni. But as Lord Wilmore, in the character of the Count's enemy, was less restrained in his answers, they were more numerous. He described the youth of Monte Cristo, who he said at ten years of age entered the service of one of the petty sovereigns of India who made war on the English. It was there Wilmore had first met him and fought against him. And in that war, Zekon had been taken prisoner, sent to England, and consigned to the hulks, whence he had escaped by swimming. Then began his travels, his duels, his caprice, then the insurrection in Greece broke out, and he had served in the Grecian ranks. While in that service he had discovered a silver mine in the mountains of Thessaly, but he had been careful to conceal it from everyone. After the Battle of Navarino, when the Greek government was consolidated, he asked of King Otho a mining grant for that district, which was given him. Hence that immense fortune which, in Lord Wilmore's opinion, possibly amounted to one or two millions per annum, a precarious fortune which might be momentarily lost by the failure of the mine. But, asked the visitor, do you know why he came to France? He is speculating in railways, said Lord Wilmore, and as he is an expert chemist and physicist, he has invented a new system of telegraphy, which he is seeking to bring to perfection. How much does he spend a yearly? asked the prefect. Not more than five or six hundred thousand francs, said Lord Wilmore. He is a miser. Hatred evidently inspired the Englishman, who, knowing no other reproach to bring on the Count, accused him of avarice. Do you know his house at Auteuil? Certainly. What do you know respecting it? Do you wish to know why he bought it? Yes. The Count is a speculator who will certainly ruin himself in experiments. He supposes there is in the neighbourhood of the house he has bought a mineral spring equal to those at Bagnères, Luchon, Cateret. He is going to turn his house into a bath house, as the Germans term it. He has already dug up all the garden two or three times to find the famous spring, and being unsuccessful, he will soon purchase all the contiguous houses. Now, as I dislike him and hope his railway, his electric telegraph, or his search for baths will ruin him, I am watching for his discomfiture, which must soon take place. What was the cause of your quarrel? When he was in England, 
he seduced the wife of one of my friends. Why do you not seek revenge? I have already fought three duels with him, said the Englishman. The first with the pistol, the second with the sword, and the third with the sabre. And what was the result of those duels? The first time he broke my arm, the second he wounded me in the breast, and the third time made this large wound. The Englishman turned down his shirt collar and showed a scar whose redness proved it to be a recent one. So that, you see, there is a deadly feud between us. But, said the envoy, you do not go about it in the right way to kill him, if I understand you correctly. Oh, said the Englishman, I practice shooting every day, and every other day Grisier comes to my house. This was all the visitor wished to ascertain, or rather all the Englishman appeared to know. The agent arose, and having bowed to Lord Wilmore, who returned his salutation with the stiff politeness of the English, he retired. Lord Wilmore, having heard the door close after him, returned to his bedroom, where with one hand he pulled off his light hair, his red whiskers, his false jaw, and his wound, to resume the black hair, dark complexion, and pearly teeth of the Count of Monte Cristo. It was Monsieur de Villefort, and not the prefect, who returned to the house of Monsieur de Villefort. The procureur felt more at ease, although he had learned nothing really satisfactory. And for the first time since the dinner party at Auteuil, he slept soundly. End of chapter 69 So Villefort was freaked out enough that not learning anything disturbing was calming enough for him to finally get a good night's sleep. Man's been scared, big time, by Monte Cristo. And why wouldn't he be? I mean, my goodness, the things that Monte Cristo has been perpetrating on these people, certainly in the slow build to now and past now, are extraordinary. And his extraordinariness, his extraordinarynicity, was certainly on display at the beginning of this chapter. Hokey smokes. First off, in chapter 68, Albert makes a comment where he says, oh, where, where's the Dagusso, who is a, an orator, and he was a, a magistrate in France. He's just a famous guy. And I put a link to him out in the show notes for you if you're, if you're interested. But then Monte Cristo mentions Normandy again. Now, this is very intriguing because it was back in chapter 46 unlimited credit when Danglars first met with Monte Cristo in Paris. That was the first time that we heard him talking to Bertuccio about going out and finding some place between Le Havre and Boulogne where there was going to be a, a what was it, a, a bay or an inlet that was deep enough for the corvette to come in, one of the, the small sailing ships. And he was giving very clear instructions and checking in to make sure that the corvette was put to sea on her way to Fécamp, which is not very far from La Havre. There was a yacht that was staying in Martiguet, which is very close to Marseille. And there's a steamboat at Chalons, which is a river not too far from Paris, about east-ish of Paris, just a little bit. And now we have this additional, when you've purchased the estate, because he hasn't bought the estate yet, He'd just been warned that he was going to need to go there at some point. So when you've purchased the estate, 
I want constant relays of horses at 10 leagues apart along the northern and southern road. The only reason you would pay to have horses waiting, horses plural, which means not a rider, but a carriage. The only reason you'd want that is because you need to travel faster than anything except a telegraph. And depending on whether the telegraph guys are laying down on the job, it may even be faster than a telegraph. And if they're stopping to refresh the horses every 10 leagues, they are really riding the horses hard. I would not want to be in a carriage, by the way, that was going that fast over these roads. I would, you would lose teeth. It would be, it'd be unpleasant. Now, the other option is it might not be teams of horses. It might be horses, plural, because you have two riders who are just going to ride real fast. And that would be considerably less jarring to the teeth as long as they're a smooth mount. <sighs> but Albert did something kind of interesting in this chapter when he, he said, my mother, no, not my mother, my father wants to have a ball. But then when Monte Cristo demurs and, and says, oh, I don't think I'm going to come, Albert gets him there by saying, my mom wants you there. Monte Cristo's got some rough moments ahead of him. Mercedes is a really interesting character and apparently the only non-idiot of the whole group. But of course, she's the one who knew Edmond best. So who else would be able to see the potential, the person in there? Hmm. It will be very interesting to see what happens with this. But then in chapter 69, so we're leading up to the ball by getting an update on what Villefort is up to. True to his word to Madame Danglars, he is not letting this sit. He is going to go find out what's going on and how long did it take you to figure out that the person who is going around asking all of these questions of the Abbe and of Lord Wilmore was actually Viafor. If you were listening to B.J. Harrison, how long did it take you before you stopped and went, wait a minute, that's Viafor's voice, but he's not the one. Wait, what? I'm curious because it took me five minutes of that voice to realize that I'd missed something or confused something, and then a while longer to just convince myself that I was listening to Fiafor. And I'm curious how long it took you if you were reading or if you were listening to our audio where that change over might not have been quite as obvious. This is one of those places where a purist might say, well, see, that's the problem with listening to a book get read to you, is if the person's a really good reader, you get accents and you get all these giveaways. And maybe Dumas didn't want you to figure out that it was Viefort doing all this earlier than the reveal at the very end of the chapter. That could be a, a reasonable argument. But I would actually posit that Dumas and any good writer would be thrilled to know that you figured it out earlier, because that would indicate that the dialogue that they had written was good enough to point out to you that, oh, this is, this doesn't sound like just some beat cop. This, this sounds like a lawyer. This, this sounds like Viafor. I think it's very possible to pick that up in text as well as in audio. So there's my plug for audiobooks for the week. Ta-da! So we have the Abe. Now, I went and I updated the Count of Monte Cristo map that we have on Google Maps and where I've, I've labeled all the little things. And now we have a chapter 65 layer on the map and a chapter 69 layer on the map. They've made these maps a little bit easier to make and that has helped us a lot. So to the original map, 
the, the many layers of the map, I have now added a layer where you can see where the Abe's home is and where Lord Wilmore's home is. And they are in interesting parts of town. The Abe, uh, a couple of blocks behind, uh, it says uh, a little bit behind Saint-Sulpice, this beautiful church, that's down in Hemingway country. It's between the Café Le Dumagot and the Musée du Luxembourg. And it's, it's in a really nifty part of town. Very Hemingway, very Saint-Germain. Lord Wilmore's, if you know Paris really well, you will have to let me know if I am reading this correctly, because I'm not sure. But Lord Wilmore's place on Rue de Fontaine in the uh, Saint-Georges neighborhood. Okay, you have to imagine this. You're at the Louvre, and you go north through the theater district. You are heading towards Sacré-Cœur, and before you hit that, you're going to hit the Moulin Rouge. So Moulin Rouge, north of that Sacré-Cœur, south of that, on a diagonal, going southwest from the Moulin Rouge, almost literally from the Moulin Rouge, heading down towards the 9th arrondissement, that is where you find Rue Fontaine. This is a really interesting part of town. This is where Cabaret Le Décadent was eventually later on in the century. This is where Toulouse-Lautrec and René Grenier and Edgar Degas and André Breton. These are all where these, these artists and painters and deeply creative people were in the next generation. So I don't know what this neighborhood was like in this generation. But it became kind of the Greenwich Village of Paris in the years right after Dumas finished writing this. So does that mean Lord Wilmore is in kind of a trendy part of town or kind of a rundown part of town? You know, someplace that's inexpensive for artists to go hang out in, which seems strange because he's supposed to be loaded. But he's also dressed in nanking trousers that are three inches too short. And have to be held by uh, bootstraps, you know, the straps that nowadays you could get little clip-on ones where the elastic would go under your, your foot, the arch of your foot, and then connect to the trouser again to keep your trousers in your boots if you were going riding with jodhpurs on or something like that. These are Mr. Darcy pants, is the way I think of them. Uh, Nanking fabric was that kind of cotton, like a, almost a cotton broadcloth, a little bit shiny, and the original Nanking was naturally yellow. Later, the cotton was dyed to make it the same kind of beigey yellow. So I wasn't sure if my assumptions that I was making about Lord Wilmore based on where he was living were correct or, or the things that Dumas wanted us to think about Lord Wilmore. And the corollary of that, of course, is and what the Count of Monte Cristo wanted people to think when they thought of Lord Wilmore. Thus, that's why he purchased this property. And number five, Rue Fontaine is still there. I think it's a, a little divey restaurant now, but you can see it on Google Maps. So that's kind of fun. But there's something else. There's another assumption that I was making, and I wanted to ask those of you who would know. The Abbe, in his conversation with Vifor, Vifor says something about him being Catholic, and he says, no, sir, I believe he's a Lutheran, which is a surprise because he's supposed to be Italian. And I always thought Italian Catholic, duh, maybe not so much. Maybe Lutherans had gotten popular in Northern Italy. I don't know. 
But then as their conversation goes on, it's revealed that he's gotten a, a commendation from the Pope for services he rendered to the Christians in the East. And we find out more about the East stuff from Lord Wilmore later. But when Vifor says, oh, does he wear these, the ribbons, the rings, all this stuff? Abbe says, no, but he's proud of them. And the, the translation in the Robin Bus version is just a little bit different. And it says, he is better pleased with rewards given to the benefactors of mankind than to those given to destroyers of men. It is a tiny little bit different. In the Victorian translation, he is better pleased with rewards given to the benefactors of man than to his destroyers. Mankind and destroyers of men is the new version. But either way, I thought it was really interesting that that line prompts Viafort to say, he's a Quaker? And for the Abbey to turn around and say, exactly, he's a Quaker, with the exception of the hat and the funky coat. I have no idea how we get from Lutheran to Quaker, except for maybe the good works thing. But I don't see such a clear Quaker line drawn here. And I live in Quaker country. So I, I mean, I could probably could go out and talk to anybody on the street and find a Quaker. But I thought maybe we have a listener who is more familiar with Lutheranism and Quakerism, specifically to have some, some read on what's going on here, because that's pretty subtle, I think. And then when, when the Abbe is asked, well, what's he doing with all his money? He wants to make a lunatic asylum with the, the property in Otoy. And he specifically says to make a lunatic asylum of it similar to that founded by the Count of Pisani in Palermo. Well, I went and I looked to see if I could find anything about this lunatic asylum. And it was an extraordinary thing that happened here. I'd never heard about this before. I probably actually had read about it when we were researching for doing the, the changeling when I was in school, because this would have been a good version of the madhouse that I was in. Pisani had a life-changing event and decided that what he was going to do with his wealth was start basically a, a psychiatric hospital. And he, he did this in 1824. He started one of the first psychiatric facilities that didn't treat the people who were there like they were animals. I mean, he, he separated the people who were in, in the asylum really intelligently. They did things like used light therapy and painted the walls with lovely colors in order to help people who were on the depressive spectrum perk up a little bit. And they had people go outside instead of staying in cells all the time. There was an understanding that occupational therapy was important. The place was supposed to be gorgeous and spotlessly clean. And part of the reason for that was because the people who were, I guess, inmates, is one way to put it, of this facility were included in the process of taking care of this place. And I, I mean, genius, incredible, so cool. And this guy totally felt that this was a sacred trust. This was a thing that had been put upon him that he needed to do thoughtfully and carefully, and I, and I mean carefully as in with great care, for these unfortunate people. While I was researching that, I wound up on an Italian Wikipedia site. And 
the top of the Italian page was a, an Italian banner stating that the people in Turkey are no longer able to see any language version of Wikipedia. I took a screenshot of that banner and I put it in a little click to tweet. So if you have a Twitter account and you want to push this out to friends, if you hadn't heard of this before, the image will go out with a little tweet just announcing that this is what's happening. Keep your eyes on this. I don't know that there's anything any of us can do outside of the country, but with all of the net neutrality stuff that's going on here, and because that will absolutely affect our ability to keep podcasting and your ability to keep consuming podcasting, with, with all of that stuff that's going on here, it's just horrifying to think of that happening in Turkey. So, so that was a surprise I wasn't expecting. But back to Lord Wilmore, both Wilmore and the Abbe did something with lights. Both of them either had very weak light that stayed weak the whole time, or the Abbe had the light that had a, a, a bonnet on it that he could move and put it so that V4 was in the hot seat, <laughs> getting the, the light in his face. But both of those things obviously are there to make sure that nobody gets a really good look at either the Abbe, who had the cowl up over his head, or Lord Wilmore, who was wearing a false everything, right? He was all false. Uh, light hair, reddish whiskers, the whole bit. A fake jaw, which I actually think were fake teeth. But the story that Lord Wilmore tells of the Count of Monte Cristo is so wild. It's not, it's not 100% different from what the Abbe says, but it's different enough. And it's not entirely unlike Edmund's life. I mean, here we find out that Zacconi, which is now his invented last name, Zacconi was taken prisoner after he fought against the Brits and sent to England and consigned to the Hulks, which were big, old, no longer being used by the Navy ships. And they were used as jails. And if you've ever seen anything about the Middle Passage, it wasn't as bad as the Middle Passage, but it was close in that these guys were chained there. They had to do manual labor during the day, in the heat, in the cold, didn't matter, chained to their bunks at night so that they wouldn't try and escape. And there was no recourse. Many, many, many of them had a two-year sentence become a life sentence, and they, they were just forgotten about there. The hulks were supposed to be used for two years. I think they wound up being used for 82 years as prisons. It was not a good place to go. So he gets consigned to the hulks and then he escapes by swimming away. And then he has all of the adventures and he heads off to Greece. And we know that the Count of Monte Cristo spent time in the east, which would be the eastern part of the Mediterranean, seeing the end of the Ottoman Empire at that time, because that was the first part of the, the Grecian fight for independence was against the Ottoman Empire. And it was, in fact, the same set of battles where Lord Byron died. But it said that after the Battle of Navarino, when the Greek government was consolidated, that's when the Ottomans were finally driven out. There was a Greek government, and he finally asks the king if he can get a mining grant for the silver mine that he had found while he'd been marching around. It's kind of a nice story. But we do hear that the island of Monte Cristo is a rock, from the Abbe, which is great. So at least that part's real. I have no idea whether the account of the fortune is accurate or not, or if they're trying to throw Viafor off. Just in case Viafor talks to Danglar, I don't know. I don't know who's getting set up for what. But at the end, 
for Lord Wilmore to say he's, you know, he's speculating in railways, he's inventing a new system of telegraphy, and he's been digging up the backyard looking for a mineral spring so that he can open a spa, like a spa town. And I've put links to Bagnier, Luchon, and to Colteret because they're, one is in the Pyrenees, and I can't remember where the other one is. Um, but they're really great ways to make money, spa towns, very good for the health, all that thing. But now we have an alternate version of why Monte Cristo was so interested in digging around in the backyard. And that means a completely innocent explanation for having found the baby's casket if it had been there. But Viafor knows, and Monte Cristo doesn't, that there wasn't any casket. So Monte Cristo thinks that he just covered his tuchus and that now he is safe in the Viafort realm, not realizing that he is still exposed, even though Viafort doesn't seem to pick up on the fact that the Abbe and Lord Wilmore are the same person. Doesn't matter. Lord Wilmore, by giving this ex explanation, Monte Cristo thinks he's safe. We know he's not. It's a great way to end a chapter. And before I let you go, I do want to thank our new patrons in April over on the patreon.com slash craftlet site. Cindy and Allison joined us and yay, I'm so glad to have you there. Thank you so much. Thank you for your support. I really, really appreciate it. And thank you all of you who have gone over to patreon.com slash brave new podcast to join us for all the fun with 1984. Uh, we recorded chapter three audio. And that'll be released roughly around the same time that Craftlet goes live. We're putting teasers up on YouTube and teasers on the Libsyn stream. And Brave New Podcast, as far as we know, is now live on iTunes as well. I know this has been a long episode, but before we go, I did want to say thank you so much for all of your birthday wishes. Uh, it was a big birthday. I'm still not entirely sure how I feel about it. But I really, really appreciate your reaching out and the kind words you had to say. And thank you. Along those lines, I got a voicemail from listener Alix, who I've corresponded with several times. And in fact, I found a comment, Alix, that you left for me on the show notes ages ago about a darning method that I mentioned in a North and South podcast episode. And that got sent into my spam, I guess, and deleted on the Craftlet site. But I still had in my Gmail buried in spam an email indicator that you had posted this. Because it got deleted off of the Craftlet site, I can't respond to it there. So I'm responding to you here. I went back and I listened to episode 334 and I couldn't hear any time that I mentioned something about a darning method. So I don't know. I'm not sure which episode the question tied to. But if you still have the question, email me and we can try and troubleshoot and figure that one out. And congratulations on catching up to real time on the podcast. You have been a marathon listener and there should be some kind of an award. I'm going to have to put up a blog button or something for you guys to put on your websites when you do that because it's pretty impressive. Along with that, however, Alix left a voicemail message for all of us. I agree with her conclusion about the count, and I appreciate her pronunciation help. I'm going to let Alix 
speak us out on the show. And that'll be it for me. Have a great one. Here you go. Hi, Heather. This is Alix from Vermont. I am au fil des jours on Ravelry, and I've written to you once or twice. Um, But first, I wanted to wish you a very, very happy birthday. Uh, Congratulations. I reached my 50th last September and uh, got all kinds of varied comments and advice from other people. But, you know, it's just like the rest of life. Everybody does it their own way. And I think you're doing it great. So congratulations and keep going. I'm enjoying the book so much. I am caught up now for the first time ever since I started listening in 2011. And I've just plowed through all of everything in order. And uh, this is such an exciting moment now because for the first time in many, many chapters. The count does not hold all the cards. And so kind of excited for the attention that that gives to things. And, um, oh, if you read any more sections yourself from the book, make sure you pronounce all those consonants in the word conte. Because if you say conte, that means a count. But if you say con, it means a jerk or an ass. And it's completely uh, not what you meant to say. So just watch out for that one. And hopefully I'll have insightful things to share. And in the meanwhile, I'm so excited to listen to your insights and those of everybody else who does share. All right. Well, have a great rest of the day. Bye-bye. A big thanks to all the Craftlit listeners who support the show by being a premium audio member via craftlit.com slash premium or via patreon.com slash craftlit. Your support for the show is what's kept us going since 2006. If you feel like getting free audio pretty much every week, please consider supporting the show by heading over to patreon.com slash craftlit and pledging what you feel the show is worth to you. If you can't support the show that way, consider leaving a review at iTunes or at our facebook.com slash craftlit page or follow at craftlit on Twitter and share the show with your followers too. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.